from uh, Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. You have probably heard about the big offshore wind projects at the Jersey Shore. One of them is called Ocean Wind One. There's a lot of support for building renewable wind energy, but there's also a lot of opposition from some shore communities. We're going to dig into the project itself today, discuss some of the potential impacts on the ocean ecosystem and whales, as well as some of the benefits clean energy provides. You can join this conversation. Our email is studio2 at whyy.org. Yeah, lots of sides to that discussion. And later in the hour, we hear from hip-hop artist Chill Moody and composer Darren Atwater about their performance at The Man in Fairmount Park tonight. And before we talk about that, in just a few minutes, we will talk with WESA's Oliver Morrison about the trial against the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter. But first, Cherry... Let's talk about some local news. Yeah. Another social media-born trend is raising concerns. This time it happened in Delaware. It's called the Door Kick Challenge. And, okay. you know, you can put your imagination out there. It's a bunch of teenagers running around, punching and kicking doors. And it <laughs> happened in <laughs> Newcastle County. Okay, yeah. Uh, they record the act to the tune of Kesha's song, Die Young, and they post it to social media, TikTok most likely. Uh-huh. Uh, now these young people are wanted on criminal charges by the Newcastle County Police Department. So far, there are six reported incidents in the area, but this TikTok challenge has come up before when teenagers get bored. Um my concern here is that this could go wrong quickly, right? As people who think their house is being broken into may react in violence. We've heard of teenagers rocking, knocking on the wrong door and getting shot, mm-hmm. you know, rolling up to the wrong house and getting shot. And so that's my concern. If parents out there of teenagers, get your neighbor teens, nieces and nephews together, talk about this TikTok challenge and tell them it's dumb. <laughs> Don't do it. Tell them it's dumb. Just like that. Dumb. Yeah. So the door kick challenge. Door, yeah, and then you, I showed you some of the videos. Yeah, They're literally did. kicking the door. Some people break through the door. Right. Um, others just kick it and run. Uh, it's and not they, just and happening it, in Delaware. It's no. Just, there's just been some incidents and, recently. Yeah, recently. Okay. But it happens other, it's been happening other places as well. Florida, they put out a warning because, you know, they have that castle doctrine down there. Yeah. And Florid, Floridians don't play. So you can't, you know, it could really end up with one of these teenagers playing a prank and ending up severely injured. And I also say this to homeowners, like if you hear this happening, you know, it could be a prank. Okay. But it might not, I, I don't know, but, but I, I just, it raises it a lot you. of concerns. It does. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, it, obviously something bad could happen um, when teenagers do anything dumb. It reminds mm-hmm. me of kids going around knocking off nail, mailboxes and stuff like that yeah. or putting like a flaming, Which was also dumb. Yeah, fl- flaming <laughs> bag of uh, you know what on people's doorstep oh, and ringing the, ringing the bell. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, there is, I think there's an element of this that just is part of teenage psychology and yeah. will always happen. I guess it's scarier when it's on social media, but it, it's still like you're never going to like get rid of this. Yeah, but it could be a crime if you actually break into someone's yeah. house. If you break the door, that's a crime. Also, I remember the crate challenge, the milk crate challenge where people there are so up many the, challenges. There's I really so many can't challenges, keep up with all the and challenges. they go viral. Yeah, and people love know, to do outrageous. I mean, this is yeah. like America's Funniest Home Videos is a version of this. People like to do outrageous stuff and um, post it 
on TikTok. video videotape yeah. it or post it on social media. Um, I, yeah, I agree. Something bad could happen. I hope people don't do it, but I kind of also acknowledge that it, it people will do it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's it's going to happen. Um, yeah, you just don't want your kid to get a criminal record. Yeah, it's on true. I don't have like a teenager, this. so yeah. maybe it doesn't quite. Because I know you've got like a yeah. nieces and nephews and stuff that are that age, and it probably hits a little closer to home. Mm-hmm. I'm telling them all, this is dumb. Don't do it. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of hitting closer to home, right around the corner from us, the Sixers, as mm-hmm. you are probably well aware, would like to build a new arena. This uh, this proposal has been out for a while incurred a lot of pushback, a lot of it from the the nearest residential community, which is the Chinatown community. Today, The Inquirer, um, in a story co-authored by my guy, Jake Bloomgart, shout out Jake, um, they published a story about how the Sixers are going to pay for an independent Mm -hmm. city study on the impact of the arena. That's obviously raising some eyebrows because um, some of the advocates think, well, how can this be an independent analysis if the Sixers are the ones footing the bill. On the other side, the city says, hey, like, p- these people want to build something. They we're not going to, yeah, yeah, we're not going to pay for the, for the analysis of it. They'll give it, they'll give us the money. And then, you know, once we get the money, we'll do what we would always do and do a study. What yeah. do you think? I think it's interesting. I do realize, you know, the folks who are opposed to the arena, probably a little nervous and 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 say it might look funny but at the same time optics. you know the optics of yeah. it but the sixers i understand according to the city will not be involved in the process of selecting the group that does the study they there is an advisory group of citizens that will include the opponents to the arena on that advisory group that will help you know facilitate this study so there's going to be eyes and I, I'm not mad that the city is trying to offset the use of taxpayer dollars. Yeah, and, I mean, it's and an interesting funniness. philosophical yeah. question, right? Like if someone wants to build something, like if they want to get permits or yeah, whatever, they, they pay exactly. for the permits. Um, and then the city comes out and does the inspection or does whatever the heck the city has to do to approve that project. Mm-hmm. This, I guess, is on a different scale. So you could argue that it's different, but sort of in its nature, it's not that different. So I would be interested to hear like, why we should treat this differently than any other type of study. Maybe there is a good argument for it. I would just yeah. be curious to hear it. I just think people are really passionate. Yeah, about for this. this project, for yeah. sure. For sure. Uh, yeah. People also passionate about their <laughs> pets. Yeah. And Go ahead. Especially. I, I just uh, teed it up. There. Uh, you did. Perfect job, Avi. Uh, and these pets are not typical pets. We're talking, you know, livestock in Atlantic City question mark you mm-hmm. know an ordinance will be introduced today that will dictate the type of farm animals you can have in your backyard and all of this was prompted over a dispute over a family's pot-bellied pig a family mm. in Egg Harbor Township went to court because neighbors complained that the smell and the pollution allegedly caused by that pet pig in their backyard pollution yeah well you know the neighbors said it was pollution okay um and they say it's no worse than any smell caused by a pet dog especially a big one you know (laughs) and um but they did admit that the animal had gotten loose in the past um and then so this proposal came out a, a few months ago that would ban all poultry and livestock including chickens but people love their chickens so of course you know you had to revise it to say that people could have up to five chickens. Six chicken, no good. No, that six chicken got to go. Uh, in Philadelphia, by the way, you can have chickens, but no roosters because of the noise. Yeah. And people love their chicks. Now, this this proposal would ban turkeys, ducks, and geese. And no, you cannot have any livestock, but you can have your chickadees. 
I gotta say, I'm always reminded. <laughs> I want to know these chicken people, by the way. <laughs> chicken people, uh, email us studio two at whyy.org. <laughs> I just it all. I'm always constantly reminded that living in a city is a delicate balance mm-hmm. between self interest and communal interest because you're living in close quarters, folks. Um, and so this example from Atlantic City just reminds me of something that I'm reminded of constantly living in South Philadelphia that you got. The right to do what you want to do to an extent. To an extent. But I will say when those egg prices were high, the chicken people were living large. <laughs> you know, so. You could just not eat <laughs> eggs. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there are alternatives. Yeah. Um, so I actually want to uh, bring in uh, reporter Oliver Morrison on a far more serious topic, something we've been covering for a while here at WHYY and Oliver has been following closely. The jury in the trial against a man who killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in 2018 now has to decide whether or not the perpetrator should be sentenced mm. to death or life in prison. Oliver Morrison is a general assignment reporter for WESA who has been covering this trial. Oliver, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. So remind us first, uh, what was Robert Bowers convicted of doing already? Um, so he was convicted of killing 11 Jewish worshipers and injuring six other people Um Conviction included that, you know, he, he had hateful intent while doing it. The, that's the, the main reason why he's uh, eligible for the death penalty. And so let's talk about this is the sentencing phase um, of, of the case. What will the jury have to decide here and, and give us, you know, the arguments on both sides? Yeah, so um, there's arguments that the prosecution is going to make that the crime was very bad. Um, and they'll talk about the number of victims, his hateful intent that there's evidence that he has not been remorseful, things like that. And then the defense is going to present arguments that there are things about Mr. Bauer's life that should cause people to feel bad for him and spare him. He had a really tragic childhood. Um, His father committed suicide. He himself attempted to commit suicide. His his mother was um, not a great parent um, and herself was institutionalized. Um, So a lot of that, in addition to some evidence about his uh, mental health, the defense is going to argue should um, push the jury to spare him. And is this basically a yes-no decision for the jury, or are there potential rulings that would land somewhere in the middle? Like, what are the potential outcomes? Yeah, there are only two outcomes. It's life in prison or um, the death penalty. I, I suppose in the longer run, because the death penalty is so complicated, there are lots of appeals, and you know, you never know exactly what's going to happen. Um, but for this jury, there's only two choices. Yeah. And I know that family members have been testifying in court. And we do have a clip of Myrna, one of the mothers of a victim. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. This is the mother of uh, Cecil and David Rosenthal. So one of the reasons why uh, he's eligible for the death penalty is some of the victims were very vulnerable, including some elderly victims. And Cecil and David were, were not elderly, but they had developmental um, delays, they had a genetic condition. And and so um, the, the the mother wasn't able to be in court, but she made a video uh, of yeah. her testimony. So we're going to play that clip now. This is Myrna Rosenthal. You have never seen two more proud individuals when they had the opportunity to participate in a service in front of the congregation, and we felt so honored to be their parents. 
as a big part of me died on October 27, 2018, and when the boys were taken from me, I woke up in the morning having two loving sons, and I went to bed at night with only memories. Myrna Rosenthal. So, Oliver, tell us uh, what you're hearing from families. It's not necessarily a case where everyone wants the same outcome here, right? That is right. Um, in, in, in court, uh, they're not really allowed to say what they want for the outcome. And so what you're hearing from families in court in particular is just um, the impact of the loss of these people on their lives, um, on you know just what, what happened to their families as a result. Some of the survivors who had wounds talk about um, how their injuries have impacted them and things like that. Um, there has been some talk. It's not been very active during the trial, but before the trial, um, some letters and and talk about what family members wanted. Um, The majority have been in favor of the death penalty of the families, and uh, a couple have been opposed. Now, this is a federal uh, case right now, Um, not a state case. Um, I know that the last execution in Pennsylvania was years and years ago. How likely, if, if there is a sentence of death, how likely is it that it would actually happen? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, what what you do know is that there have only been a, a handful of executions at the federal level in the last couple of decades. There was three under George W. Bush. And then in the last six months of the Trump presidency, there was like six or seven. Um, there's currently a moratorium in, in the Biden administration, but they did allow this and one other um, death penalty case to move forward, which suggests that maybe at some point they're going to uh, allow the death penalty again. But there hasn't been an execution under a Democratic president in, in quite a while. Um, and so a lot of it is going to come to sort of politics, you know, and even the, the normal appeals process can often take a decade, two decades is, is not uncommon at all. And so, um, you know, it, it will, it will kind of depend on, you know, who, who the president is when that appeals process sort of works its way through. And very quickly, Oliver, about 30 seconds left. What is the estimated timeline for the rest of this trial? Um, I, it, We'll probably hear closing arguments the end of next week, maybe the beginning of the following. So we're and then uh, it, it's hard to say how long the jury will deliberate. It could be a couple hours, which was the case in the last part of the trial, or it could be days. Um, so within a couple of weeks, we should know. That is Oliver Morris in general, assignment reporter for WESA in Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us, Oliver. And coming up next, we're talking wind farms, New Jersey, DEP commissioner. Sean LaTourette is standing by, and we want to hear from you. Email your questions, studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. You have probably read about the massive wind energy project off the Jersey Shore. It is called Ocean Wind One. It's being done by a Danish firm called Orsted. 
and it would put 98 turbines about 13 miles off the coast of Atlantic City. The project would be one of the biggest in the country and would generate a lot of clean energy. It's estimated to power around 380,000 homes, and while it's received federal and state approval, Recently, there's been more pushback to it from citizens, from some citizens and some interest groups. In fact, there is now a lawsuit against the state. So let's talk about offshore wind power in New Jersey. And to start this conversation, we are joined by Sean LaTourette, commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Commissioner LaTourette, welcome to Studio Two. Well, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be with you. Yes. And the first question is uh, this this New Jersey wind turbine effort is part of a national plan led by the Biden administration. Can you just explain to folks what Ocean One is and the status of where it is in the timeline of coming to fruition in New Jersey? Sure. So uh, the Biden administration uh, has a goal of of reaching uh, at least uh, 30 million megawatts of um, offshore wind uh, power. Uh, the Murphy administration, I'm sorry, 30,000, but the Murphy administration several years ago uh, had put forth a strategy to, for the state of New Jersey in particular, uh, achieve uh, 7,500 megawatts of offshore wind power. Uh, And states around the country, including ours, have been accelerating uh, their goals uh, individually and collectively in some regions in order to expedite uh, the uh, delivery of clean energy in order to reduce dependence on uh, oil and gas and help to fight the climate crisis. All right. So folks want to know, what did the state do to ensure that this project will not harm the ecology of the Jersey Shore. Describe the steps that you took and why you felt this pro- this uh, project, you know, met the threshold. Sure. I, I do want to be careful, given that there are folks uh, who uh, have pending legal action. Uh, but one of the things I think is important to understand is what the job of a Department of Environmental Protection even is. Our job Uh, is to evaluate uh, for any type of infrastructure that might have negative environmental externalities. And the truth is that all infrastructure has some degree of environmental externality. Our job is to evaluate that potential for adverse externalities and work with project applicants, whether it is a telecom line or a pipeline or a wind farm or its associated cabling. Our job is to work with the developer that is proposing an application and ensure that they're avoiding adverse impacts, minimizing the potential for adverse impacts where they cannot be completely avoided and mitigating for any harm to the environment. That is a foundational principle of all environmental legal permitting uh, and evaluation. And that is the work that was done uh, in the case of Ocean Wind 1. And that is the work that is done with respect to every single uh, project uh, that is pending, uh, whether it's offshore wind uh, or other uh, infrastructure in in state and federal waters. And it's a very similar process as between the state and federal government. And so types of impacts that are evaluated include uh, the likelihood of 
uh, adversely impacting uh, ecological features, uh, aquatic life, uh, things like seagrass beds that folks may think are irrelevant are actually quite important. And so we evaluate those those issues. We work with uh, the development community to uh, to avoid those impacts and to mitigate for impacts that cannot be avoided. And that's always the paradigm. Yeah, and I got to say, Sean, I've seen the pictures of some of the um, the foundation that's going to be laid in the ocean to build these wind turbines. Can you get into just sort of like the the initial construction phase of placing these wind turbines in the ocean? What is going to be done to protect and make sure that the that the the wildlife that lives in the ocean there w- will not s- suffer needlessly? So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, of of work that that I've done throughout my career uh, in in environmental protection and services, where uh, of what the the types of protective measures that are often taken. So so first and foremost, uh, in the exploration of identifying places for underwater infrastructure, uh, there is surveying work that is done. In the course of that surveying work, even before there is any construction, uh, there is requirements for monitoring. Uh, of for potential adverse impacts. So for example, if you have uh, a survey vessel in the water uh, that is conducting uh, underwater surveying to understand the configuration of the ocean floor, for example, uh, that vessel will have wildlife monitors to ensure that there is avoidance of conflict with that wildlife and that if there is conflict uh, that there or potential conflict, I should say, that activities cease so as to not harm wildlife. That is a, a requirement uh, that is upon vessels doing surveying work and will be a requirement upon vessels doing construction work. Uh, there are also other features that uh, are put in place to be protective, depending on the circumstances. Sometimes you may have uh, bubble curtain barriers to ensure that that noise that is generated underwater uh, is not harming uh, nearby uh, aquatic life. And so there are a a litany of different best management practices that are utilized. Uh, The foundational principle being that you cannot harm wildlife, aquatic life, in the quest to do uh, this work. Now, there is sometimes what is called uh, incidental harassment. And what that means, it, it uh, it, it sounds potentially troubling but but what that means is you you can't uh take uh, a opportunity for wildlife to to forage or to uh or, or to mate uh off the table for them and that if you are scaring wildlife away from an area uh that 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 be a temporary uh function yeah. of the work that is ongoing well, we have to leave it there. That is uh, Sean LaTourette, the uh, New Jersey Commissioner of Environmental Protection. Thanks so much for your time today. You are welcome. We're going to continue this conversation now by bringing in uh, Bruce Afrin, who is an attorney representing a trio of groups who are suing New Jersey and perhaps unveiling some more uh, some legal action later down the line. We're also joined um, on the line by Angeli Ramos, director of the New Jersey chapter of the Sierra Club, which does support this project, Ocean Wind One. Uh, Bruce, Angeli, welcome to the show. 
Thanks very much. Hi, thank Good you. To be here. So, Bruce, I uh, want to start with you. What you're suing, right? You're, you're representing some plaintiffs here. What rules or laws do you allege the state has broken? Well, you know, it's interesting. Mr. LaTourette used the phrase, there are externalities. What there is, is admitted environmental destruction that the federal agency and DEP all acknowledge. This will reduce fishing stocks on a permanent basis. It will harden the seabed, changing the habitat for native species and bringing in other species, changing the whole fauna of the seabed coast. The federal government admits it's going to cause invertebrate mortality and that these structures are to be built in the migration corridor of blue whales and right whales, two of the most endangered species in the world. But, but as just, well, just, 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 I want to focus on the question, though, because as, as the commissioner said, all projects have some impact on the environment, whether you're mm-hmm. building a skyscraper or a wind turbine. What rules, because you're suing here, what rules have they broken? They've broken three rules. First of all, there's New Jersey's Coastal Zone Management Act which requires that no project go forward if it will cause these forms of injury. And DEP acknowledged in its consistency review when it approved this plan that all of this environmental harm will exist. And it acknowledged that it has no current mitigation measures, but it's looking to see future measures that may be introduced. That violates New Jersey law. This also violates the National Environmental Policy Act and the Marine Mammal Protections Act because of the admitted harm to the sea species and to marine mammals. So we have three areas of law that this project violates. Yeah, I understand that there are other potential lawsuits coming. Are there other potential legal issues um, that are in the works as well? There are. In fact, very shortly, within a day or so, we'll be announcing a legal challenge to the subsidies that the legislature gave to Ocean Wind, that's Orsted, Those subsidies were never part of the BPU approval, and they will cause losses to ratepayers. And this is an illegal special grant of subsidies. That lawsuit will be filed probably within a day. And finally, within a very short period, because of the laws I just described, the National Environmental Policy Act and Marine Mammals Act being violated, a direct federal challenge to the approval of Ocean Wind One will be filed. That's probably two weeks away. I want to bring in Angeli now um, from the New Jersey chapter of the Sierra Club. Angeli, um, you've heard a lot so far, um, but your response specifically to this idea that the wind turbines will have a permanent impact on various marine animals that live in the corridors where, where these will be built. What does your analysis say? Yeah, um, thank you for the question. So, I mean, we have to look at things from a big picture perspective as well. First of all, with all of the changes that are occurring right now in the ocean because of climate change, and then additionally because of all of the increased shipping that we have been witnessing um, for this few uh, past couple of years after the pandemic, um, things are changing already in the ocean. And so the construction and the development of the offshore wind industry here in New Jersey and in the New York area, it's to curb those impacts from climate change. Now, going into the direct impacts from the wind farms, specifically now talking about Ocean Wind 1, as the commissioner, uh, Commissioner LaTourette mentioned earlier, any type of development, any type of construction is going to have an impact. There is no way around that. The devil is in the details. So how do we avoid and mitigate? How do we find alternatives to cause the least impact as possible to all of our ocean ecosystems and our coastal towns is the best way of doing it. And there are many 
agencies involved in this evaluation. It's not just the New Jersey DEP, it's Boeing, it's NOAA. And, you know, and we also depend on very solid environmental protection laws like NEPA, as mentioned um, previously, and in the Endangered Species Act. And all of these evaluations using those laws consider that the impact, the temporary impact that the construction of these wind turbines is going to cause will face away and things are going to change into a positive way in the ocean ecosystem. And there are various examples. For example, the two wind turbines off of the coast of Rhode Island have shown to increase fisheries in the area because it has actually provided the opportunity for reefs to develop on the platforms of the wind turbines. Um, so it's it's really, you have to look, the devil is in the details, but you also have to look at things from a big picture perspective. And that's you just, just, just to clarify for our listeners, you're talking about the Block Island Project, a wind turbine project in mm-hmm. Rhode Island that is already up and running and some of the impacts have been studied. That is that is correct. And if you just tuned in, we're speaking with Bruce Afrin, uh, attorney, an attorney representing a group, uh, several groups that have sued the state of New Jersey over the Ocean Wind One project. We're also speaking with Angeli Ramos, director of the New Jersey Sierra Club. And we want to hear from you. Do you have questions about the wind turbines project happening right now in New Jersey? Email us your questions at studio2 at whyy.org. We have an email from Jamie. Um, It says the uh, FEIS for Ocean Wind 1 states the project will have negligible positive impact on climate change. Why are we allowing ourselves to be guinea pigs? I'd love to hear from Angelie and also from Bruce in response to that question. Folks feel like New Jersey trying to be the leader here um, in the area of wind energy. Um, do you do do folks has enough been done to study this? Um, it, is New Jersey are New Jerseyans being guinea pigs in this instance? We, and, and I want to start with you, Angelie. Yeah, thank you, Sherry, for the question. Um, so first of all, climate change is not a state problem. Climate change is not a USA problem. Climate change is a global problem. When you see these statements in environmental impact assessment that says that this will have negligible impact on climate change, it's very specific to global climate change, right? And so as we all know, we've heard for many, many, many years talking about climate change, everybody has to pitch in every state, every country in this world to try to reduce emissions coming from the fossil fuel industry as much as possible. So of course, one individual wind farm off of the coast of New Jersey is not going to solve the global climate change problem that we're all experiencing. It's going to have an impact in emissions reductions in the state and definitely in the country. But, you know, we need many more transitioning away from fossil fuels globally and more uh, ways of acquiring renewable energy across the world. And that's truly what's going to solve the entire, the entirety of the global climate change problem. In terms of being guinea peaks, I mean, there are offshore wind um, wind farms across the world. I just mentioned the one in Block Island off of the coast of Rhode Island. There are five wind turbines off of the coast of Virginia. I mean, this, of course, is an a new industry in the U.S., and it, it's a waking call. It's, it's us understanding that we have to stop the faucet of fossil fuel um, energy 
energy produced by the fossil fuel industry. We need to transition into renewable energy, and this is our future. So instead of being concerned, we should be all excited and contributing to moving away from something that not only makes us sick, but it makes the ocean and marine wildlife significantly sick. And, And Bruce, an opportunity to respond there. Yeah, you know, Sherry, we're, Sherry, we're we're seeing vague generalities offered to defend absolute known and admitted environmental destruction. Yes, of course, it's a wonderful goal to reduce emissions. It's a wonderful goal to impact climate change positively if that can be done. But there's no evidence that building these hundreds of turbines off our coast with the known environmental destruction is going to have any impact on climate change on the Atlantic seaboard. And when we balance the theoretical gain versus the absolute environmental destruction of what has become a highly productive Atlantic seaboard, we have to say we're mortgaging our future. You know, there's no one who has studied the impact of this on any real way on the environment. You know, Angeli refers to two wind turbines off Block Island and five, um, I think, was North Carolina. That's two or three two locations versus the impact of hundreds of these. But Bruce, Just, but Bruce I, feel like, I feel like we're being led into a bit of a philosophical trap here, which is, yes, any one project will have some impact on the environment. Yes, any one project will not solve global climate change. But if you build none of them, if you start from that place, you can never build a single one and you can never change the game. Margaret writes in an email, she is happy seeing windmills on the ocean. This is a way to break our habit of big oil consumption. I mean, I don't understand how you can ever build a project if you set the threshold that you have just set, Bruce. I have not set a threshold, but you don't violate federal environmental laws without studying in some way the actual impact of this massive project. Denmark, for example, has canceled 16 of its 19 leases precisely because they failed European Union environmental impact statements. And Denmark's the home of Orsted that's building these. Around the world, people are recognizing that wind, while it may be so-called renewable as energy, is not renewable for the environment on the seabed. It's destructive in a permanent way. Yeah. No one has studied what's going to happen to these marine mammals that migrate through hund- are now to migrate through hundreds of steel structures. Are they going to move further uh, 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 Bruce, into the ocean? Uh, Bruce, let me, let me jump in a little bit because I do think we're get- some listeners feel there's some hypocrisy at play here, which is that you are representing groups that have built billions of dollars of development along the shoreline, inexorably, permanently altering these habitats. And now, all of a sudden, when we don't know the exact you know, outcome of one project, 13 nautical miles off the coast, it has to be stopped in its tracks. How do you defend that position? Avi, you're misstating what I said. The federal government has admitted all of this environmental destruction will take place. This is not speculative. This is not... But how does that differ from a skyscraper or a condo or the things that happen every day along the coast of the Jersey Shore? Because we've stopped doing those things along the coast. Those houses that exist, yes. Those houses... We don't build anything new along the Jersey Shore or anywhere in the estuary? We no longer open untouched land along the Jersey Shore. It is illegal under federal and New Jersey law. Those developed areas were built when we were ignorant of the impact. We can't tear hundreds of thousands of structures down, but that doesn't mean we go ahead and destroy the seabed. Just because the U.S. burned its forests does not mean Brazil should burn its rainforests. We learn as we go forward. We don't enhance environmental destruction. 
regardless of the good goal we may have. Angeli, can you respond to that? Is is there is there any argument here that, you know, frankly, we're, 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 we've learned from the past and we should not move forward with large scale projects along the shoreline because of what it has already done? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I have uh, plenty to say to what Bruce is saying. I think what is happening in Denmark, I mean, of course, Bruce, if a developer is violating the conditions of their permits and they're causing environmental impacts that were not foreseen previously, they need to suspend their lease. It's a violation of the contract and, and, their, and their permits. So, of course, New Jersey and the U.S. would, would stop that immediately. But I, I do want to say, you know, the U.S. as well as New Jersey is not breaking any laws these any type of development again there are buffers as to what is allowed and what is not allowed and within those buffers the federal government as well as the new jersey government understand that these impacts um some majority of them negligible but these moderate low impacts are acceptable in in terms of moving forward with an industry that it's going to protect marine wildlife and i also want to add you know Everything is changing in the ocean, and it's very simplistic to say that the construction of one specific wind farm, when you're dealing with climate change, with shipping, with changes of sea currents and salinity and acidification, and millions of other variables that are contributing to changes in behaviors of marine wildlife and prey fish, that suddenly one specific project is going to change everything in the game. And Angeli, I got to ask you a follow-up question there, because it, it seems like there's a lot of misinformation uh, about this project, um, what efforts are being done to to sort of educate the public on what is actually happening, what safeguards are put in place, and and what you know what what watchdog groups are doing to ensure that there will be minimal impact, minimal negative impact on the ocean and the wildlife. Yeah, thank you for, for that question, Sherry. So, um, you know, I represent New Jersey Sierra Club, but Sierra Club nationally, as well as many other environmental um, groups in New Jersey, environmental organizations, we are out there educating the public of all of the benefits that this renewable energy industry, offshore wind, can bring to New Jersey. It's jobs, it's better air, healthier air, healthier water. It's, it's a transition from the very old fossil fuel industry to our future of renewable energy. We, you know, we partner across the country to bring information. It is definitely misinformation and the data is out there. If you, all you have to do is really just go to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or NOAA website where you can see, right, with the whole whale situation, the unusual mortality events, you can see that for the Atlantic Ocean, there has been going an unusual mortality event since 2016 which predates any type of exploratory step that the offshore wind industry might have employed. It's, it's pre-offshore wind. But let's just get out of the you know, narrow we, lens of the Atlantic Ocean. Sorry, go ahead. But I just want to give Bruce a quick chance to respond. We have about 20 yeah. seconds, Bruce. Um, your sure. response. Sure. Thank you. Essentially, I mean, no disrespect to Angeli, but that was a non-answer. The question was, what measures are being taken to make sure these harms don't take place? The federal agency and DEP have both acknowledged the measures are not known. 
They're going to look to build measures in the future, but they don't identify measures today. And Angeli was not able to identify any. The truth is there are no watchdog groups with mitigation measures because the governor admits there are no known mitigation measures well, at this time. We do have to wrap I, up, and I, I know we can go back and forth. I'm sorry, Angeli. Someone, yes. someone ultimately <laughs> yes. has to speak last, but you both... Uh, I wanted to get to that, but it's okay. <laughs> absolutely. And maybe another day. Uh, thank you. That's Bruce Afrin, a public interest attorney. Angeli Ramos, director of the New Jersey chapter of the Sierra Club, joining us to talk about wind turbines off the Jersey Shore here on Studio 2. We've got more coming up with Chill Moody. Stick with us. And welcome back, everybody, to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Tonight, hip-hop artist and Philly native Chill Moody will perform alongside the Philadelphia Orchestra in celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Avi, you may recall we've been talking up this 50th anniversary since May. Remember, we had oh, DJ course. Jazzy How Jeff. Could I forget? It was a great it day. It was amazing, yeah. <laughs> and tonight's performance at The Man, it's huge. It's a celebration of hip-hop culture, its evolution of the sound, and how the music has been intertwined with social progress. The composer behind the show is Darren Atwater, who's been commissioned by the man before. His work is innovative and tells a complicated, nuanced story of hip-hop. I talked to both of them and started by asking Chill exactly what that story is. The story I tell, I mean... First of all, it's my story, you know, mm-hmm. so it's the story of a kid from West Philly who grew up embedded in the hip hop culture, knowing nothing else but hip hop culture as his own and um, found his way in that. I mean, it's a lot of different ways, but one of them has been as an MC. So we're telling that story, but also telling the story of the progression of hip hop and how hip-hop culture affected different communities and, you know, it spread into different black communities throughout the world. There's a lot of pain behind a lot of the music, but one of the first things me and Darren spoke about when we sat down was, like, we want to make sure we exploit the other side of that story. Let's, there's the pain, but then there's the celebration. There's the heroic side to it. So let's make sure we, we celebrate that part as well. So, you know, this whole thing is a, a big celebration. And Darren, I want you to kind of expand on what Chill just said, because you've made the argument that hip hop wasn't just born one day, that it evolved as sort of being an evolution or a continuation of American music. Yeah, well, just the, the visual and the, the language, the vernacular in terms of rhythmic speech. I mean, 80 years ago, Lester Young, jazz cat, saying cats and homeboy. <laughs> You know, even our musical genres from doo-wop to bebop to hip-hop, you know, I say hip-hop has amnesia and it's sort of amputated itself from a larger tradition. You know, even being a capsule as we smuggle the culture in a certain way, that extends back to, to slavery. You know, they use spirituals not as only a musical form, but a form of protest, a form of mobilizing, a form of like social progression. Um, so all those elements that we kind of see in hip hop, the DNA can be found in jazz, you know, how Charlie Parker and Dizzy are kind of playing over changes, mm-hmm. scatting, all of that. It's, it's all the same, same, same connection. 
chill. This is a genre of music that came from the streets mm-hmm. and, and from folks who were often ignored. And yet now you look at it, fashion, <laughs> politics, the dictionary has shifted because mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. of hip hop language. Times. Multiple times. <laughs> I was like, I think about the term bling bling. bling, bling is it's there. in <laughs> the dictionary now, thanks to hip hop <laughs> artists, right? It's also shaped free speech. Mm-hmm. There were challenges that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Talk about the impact that you've seen just growing up and becoming a person who is part of the movement. I actually sat on Capitol Hill with Uncle Luke, Two Live Crew Uncle Luke, and he put me on to the fact that he's like, yo, y'all able to do that because of what I did here, like uh, parental advisory stickers and all that stuff. Like he, he schooled me on his contribution there. Just being able to be part of that side of the culture, the people that help sustain, help make sure it continues to move forward as far as like laws are concerned, but also just preserving a culture, period, through the lyrics, through being authentic and things like that. I was like thrust into that position almost. It was like, oh, you know a little bit more than the typical just writing the raps. Like you, you seem like you want to do a little bit more here. So I was, you know, grateful enough to be ingratiated in all of that kind of from the beginning you know standing as philadelphia's music ambassador and i've held that position for like eight Mm -hmm. eight nine years at this point it's always been about pushing a culture forward and my whole artist and residency as a whole is like all right we're bringing hip-hop to the man in a space where i ain't gonna say it wasn't welcomed but it wasn't as invited and there's a mashup now darren you have chill moody you're bringing the philadelphia orchestra and it's all around hip hop, something that you don't necessarily think about when you think about orchestra. Mm-hmm. Kind of lay out what people can expect and what it's been like putting all of this together. Yeah, like to your point, Philadelphia Orchestra is one of the world-class orchestras of renown. So to have my work performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra is an extreme honor as a composer, chill and all the elements that come with the choir and the rhythm section, but also the movements that are going to be taking place within Black Metropolis. There are four scenes, what I call them, tableau. And so as hip-hop is an anchor, we're going to experience a lot of different movement in in and around Black culture. There's a movement called Paint Factory, which I pay homage to the original iteration. And then we have, you know, social unrest, social justice. The third tableau is Black and Brown Uptown. So we're going to kind of walk through some of the most elegant, sophisticated aspects of our culture, the the joyous um, aspects. And then we have the last tableau is called climate change, where we sort of talk about politics of identification and identity representation. So it's sort of another gumbo of not only sonic experiences, but just the movement and how culture is constructed through music. Hip hop used a lot of music from the past. It would take, you know, jazz and R&B and doo-wop, like you said, and remix it. Will we hear some of that familiar sounds and how will that be wrapped in? You know, from a song that's called Pink, um, it's almost like a pop ballad to Purple, which is like a a gospel ballad to the Civil Wars and Civil Rights that has like this kind of march, civil rights kind of vibe to it, to how sports and athletes and hip-hop have kind of represented themselves. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. So you have everything from hip-hop to jazz to gospel to pop. Um, we got Hard Not Life that just makes an appearance. It just It's the breath of our African-American musical history. What excites you about this, Jill? How different it is. 
um, there'll, there'll be a lot of call and response and making the audience a part of the show, which in my mind isn't typical of an orchestra show. It's going to feel completely different than anything anyone has experienced. And I love to be a part of, of things like that. This day will be special because I'm releasing a record called Horns at the Funeral. We'll be performing it with the Philadelphia Orchestra. It'll be my first time performing it with them. The first verse goes, uh, you know my story, right? Rise to fame from the pain to glory, right? You heard from a source, he rips all the mics, names in all sort of lights. Well, you sort of right. So you just know about the daily obsession. I take a step inside the booth and make a daily confession. But you don't know about the daily depression, the doubt that comes with it. You just hear it and swear that I'm having fun with it. But you don't know about being that one ticket everyone's hitting, telling you to come with it or just be done with it. Tunnel vision. You don't know what I go through. Keep it real. You only know what I show you. Remember back in 02, you asked where my life was headed. Couldn't have told you. But now I might recite these lyrics at the O2. The garden gets the show too. See that 80 point theory so true. I figure we gonna change that. Take whatever spots we was given and rearrange that. Make it so the spots that we're living I'll park the range at. I'll always be the same cat. Just vowed to always be the same cat. That's where my mind frames at. Memories so vivid it's like I'm hearing pictures. Words so powerful figured there in scriptures. I promise it's different. But while I'm here with you in the physical... I just want you to know, when it's my cue to go, play the horns at the funeral. (laughs) Well, Chill Moody, thank you so much for joining Studio Two. Thank you. Thank you. Chill Moody is a hip-hop artist, entrepreneur, and the Man Center's very first community artist in residence. Darren, it's been a pleasure speaking with you this afternoon. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Darren Atwater is the composer of Black Metropolis. Beautiful. I want to wrap the end of the show. I feel inspired, but no one wants to hear that, Sherry. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. For more of our show, head to whyy.org slash studio2 or download us wherever you get your podcast from. Studio 2 at WHYY. In Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolf-Manerant. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thanks for joining us. We're leaving you with Chill Moody's Horns at the Funeral. When it's my cue to go, please play the horns at the funeral. Go.